0: japan i'm frank ling
1: and from chicago illinois i'm charles lee
0: and you're listening to the Grok science show
1: that's right it's a weekly look at the world of science technology and their effects on our daily lives coming
0: up with today's show seaweed and turtles
1: in addition, we're we'll joined by Professor Richard Wrangham, who will talk about how cooking made us
0: human. So, stay tuned for all this,
1: plus the Grokatron five thousand,
0: and the world famous question of the week
1: coming right up here on the Groks
0: Science Show. Rock science. I'm Frank Ling,
1: and I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank?
0: Pretty perked up now. Had coffee today.
1: I thought uh, Japan was more of a tea drinking area.
0: Traditionally has, but yeah, it has one of the densest Starbucks numbers in the world. I think it's like a lot of micro roasteries. I, th- I think they're becoming more California these days,
1: which is good because California is becoming more Japanese and broke as well. <laughs>
0: Well, there's one story about how California is becoming Japanese. Apparently, the wakame, the seaweed that Asians love to eat, has now invaded the California coast. And for the first time, it's actually been sighted in San Francisco Harbor.
1: Good news for all the uh, seaweed eaters out there, or is it deleterious environmental effects?
0: Although it can get lots of good nutrition from these seaweeds, apparently it's not native to California and it's choking off the native variety of aquatic life in the bay. So what some conservationists are now doing is scraping it off from the piers to see if they can contain it. It's not clear if it's possible. If it's localized within a couple of places, it's possible to contain it. But if it's beyond that, then there's probably little hope that they could stop the Wakabai from spreading all over the harbor. Either that or the aquatic life there has to adapt and change into something more Japanese. Uh, (laughs) Evolution. Yes. Well, I I thought everybody in California thought they were Asian.
1: Uh, I thought that was Arkansas. Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm always confusing my states, you know, I was never very good at geography. Mm. I went to public school, you know. So did I. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to know about that.
0: It was actually in the recent edition of the San Francisco Chronicle.
1: My favorite scientific resource in all the world.
0: (laughs) That's pretty damn good.
1: Yeah. It's not even our favorite journal, too. (laughs) Alright, well now uh, going from seaweed to our animal fact of the week. Ooh, animal fact, excited. How can you not get excited about the animal fact of the week, friends?
0: I like eating animals (laughs) and seaweed.
1: But uh, this actually has to do with turtles. Researchers have been wondering how the turtle gets its shell.
0: Oh, okay. I thought they're naked when they're born, right? And then somehow they crawl into...
1: I, I think you're thinking about certain forms of sea craft. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. You know, I need to uh, learn more about my delicacies.
1: Uh, well, so this is actually work that was done in your neck of the woods by uh, researchers over at the uh, Riken Institute. This was work uh, described by Shigeru Kututani, and he actually went to local farms trying to get fertilized eggs of Chinese soft-shell turtles. A delicacy out there that tastes like chicken.
0: Mmm. <laughs> it's next on my menu.
1: They uh, looked at the development of the embryo, how the shell actually forms.
0: Okay, so is the shell a a part of the skin or is it part of the skeletal system?
1: It's of the ribs that actually do a kind of weird inversion to form the shell. Okay. These ribs essentially they fold inwards and shoot over the shoulder blades. And after they do that, they're sort of on the backside of the animal instead of on the inside. And then they start forming the uh, shell from that dorsal part.
0: Wow. I cannot imagine people doing that.
1: <laughs> Probably it's not too pleasant for the turtles either. Mm. But
0: <laughs> it's kind of amazing that uh, as these turtles get bigger, their shell grows with that. I mean, it may be actually painful as it's going to a bigger body.
1: Well, uh, I don't know. We should ask the turtles if it is painful or not. Maybe it is. <laughs> Too bad but they have not lived so
0: long, right? <laughs> I, I guess they are pretty unique creatures, huh?
1: I mean, who couldn't use a shell? If people keep throwing stuff at me, I could use a shell.
0: You know, every time I fall down. But if you fall on your back, you couldn't get up. I hadn't thought about that. I do wonder what happens when they do we fall on their back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's just sort of the end. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this was published in a recent edition of Science. Excellent. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Richard Reagan will join us to discuss Catching Fire. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grok's Science Show. Well, there are many theories of the selective advantages that humans have that allowed us to split off from the other apes. But one that has been often overlooked is the role that cooking may have played in our evolution. More than any other change, how we tamed fire may be our greatest accomplishment as a species. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Richard Wrangham. Professor Wrangham is a professor of biological anthropology at Harvard University, author of numerous scientific and popular works on the subject, including Demonic Males, Apes, and the Origins of Human Violence. His latest work, Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human, explores this topic for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Wrangham, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
2: Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks.
1: Uh, Well, certainly our pleasure, and I think this is really a very fascinating book. A lot of your work in the past and present has dealt with chimpanzees. I'm curious if this idea sprung from your observations of chimpanzee behavior.
2: It did in a way, because I spent a lot of time trying to eat chimpanzee foods, and I realized (laughs) that they just were not suitable for human consumption at all. And then it slowly dawned on me that humans are different from other animals. You know, other animals can eat raw foods and survive very well, but humans really can't. I mean, cooking does two great things. It increases the proportion of the nutrients that you take in that actually are digested for various different reasons, depending on the nutrients. And secondly, it reduces the amount of energy that we expend in the process of digestion. So when cooking, we make our food softer, and softer food is easier to digest. It's digested quicker, and it takes less energy. So all animals experience those things. But what's happened with humans over the course of our evolution? is that we have adapted to take such advantage of cooked food that we have jettisoned those aspects of our intestinal systems that we don't need unless we eat raw food. And those are that we've got a much smaller mouth than we should have, as it were, if we were a great ape, and much smaller guts altogether. And uh, it's because of the small size of our lower intestine and our stomachs and our mouths and our teeth that we are now committed to eating Cooked food. But the great advantage of that is that we get even more benefit out of cooked food because we don't have to pay the cost of maintaining those
1: guts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and what are the trade offs? What do we gain in, in return for a reduced gut?
2: Well, we gain tremendous energy. So humans are able in a very short time to eat a very satisfying meal and to gain more energy out of our food than we would if we were eating it raw. And exactly how much is still unknown. But the evidence for protein is that protein, as a result of being denatured by heat, exposing it to the action of digestive enzymes, we get something like uh, an extra 30% of energetic value out of cooked protein compared to raw protein. And it looks uh, similar sorts of figures for starch. So we get a huge extra energy boost. It probably explains why humans have a relatively short interbirth interval. Hunters and gatherers, it tends to be uh, of the order of three years compared to, say, six years in chimpanzees. It uh, explains how we are... Able to have a long lives in which we resist diseases because we have immune systems in which we invest in a lot of energy uh, for them. We have long distances that we can travel every day. A chimp gets completely exhausted after traveling something like five miles, whereas humans, of course, on a regular basis work far more than that as hunters and gatherers. And, you know, one of the most significant aspects of the extra energy that we get is in terms of the evolution of our brains because. It's very clear that brains are immensely expensive organs, and the only way that animals can afford relatively big brains is to shift energy from elsewhere. Well, guess what we've done? We've shifted it from our formerly large guts. We've saved a lot of energy there, and that enables us to have bigger brains. And in other primates, we see this very clearly, that the species that happen to eat more easily digested foods have smaller guts and bigger brains. And we're able to take advantage of that so that we have the smallest guts of all and the biggest brains of all.
1: And, of course, this led to a general expansion of our intelligent capacity.
2: Right. I mean, although big brains don't perfectly predict intelligence, there's obviously a good correlation. And uh, there was probably a positive feedback because once we had slightly bigger brains, then we were able to cook our foods even better. And that would have had all the more advantages. So over the last two million years, our brains have just been steadily increasing in size.
1: So does this argue then that those people who are promoting a raw food movement are a bit misguided?
2: Well, I think they're misguided from the point of view that the philosophy behind a raw food diet very often is that it's natural. The central argument is animals eat their raw food, eat their food raw. Uh, We are animals, so it's natural for us to do so too. I think that's wrong, but on the other hand, The fact of eating raw food may well have all sorts of health advantages nowadays as long as you are careful to monitor the effects. And one of the biggest ones is that if you eat your food raw, you lose weight. It's a great way to lose weight. The only difficulty is that it's quite difficult to do because you've got to have an iron will to resist the smell of that pizza or the temptation to dig into the roast. Raw food is just not as appetizing for most people as cooked food is
1: indeed we sort of evolved to favor the cooked food and the smell of cooked food
2: well yes but you know even before cooking evolved we probably were prepared for it and the reason I say that is because all animals have in their mouths uh, not just the taste system that recognizes things like sweet sour salt and bitter but they have a texture perception system that means that they can recognize when a food is softer and therefore more easily digested and therefore gives you more energy and We can test this directly by looking at the great apes nowadays and seeing whether or not, when they're presented with cooked food or raw food, they prefer it cooked or raw. And we've done tests with five different foods and and all four ape species, and in every case we find that they never prefer the food raw. There are some foods that they don't mind whether it's cooked or raw, like an apple, and there are others that they prefer cooked, like a carrot or a piece of beef. So even without having been exposed to cooking, I think any animal will prefer its food cooked.
1: Hmm. Sort there's sort of a natural biological propensity for wanting to extract as much energy as possible out of our food.
2: Totally. I mean, energy is the staff of life. Life is in many ways just a process by which organisms garner energy and turn it into more examples of their own species. And the more energy you get, then the faster evolution works. The better you survive, the more genes you pass on to next generation and so on. So a little bit of extra energy has a big impact and a lot of extra energy, like what cooking gives, is going to have a huge impact. I think in many ways the acquisition of cooking can be seen as the largest improvement in the quality of the diet in the history of life.
1: Hmm. Uh, You also show and argue that even very primitive societies still have cooking as the basic element of their society.
2: It's a funny thing that all throughout history people have spoken about the existence of tribes and peoples that do in fact eat their food raw, But in every case, it turns out this is not true, and it's just a kind of racist slur about the people over the hill that you don't like. But it turns out not only that in every uh, culture, people eat most of their food cooked, but it's in a very specific way. They have a cooked evening meal. There is absolutely nowhere where people just bring raw food together and sit around eating their food raw in the evening. Everywhere. They have a cooked evening meal, which is, of course, a a wonderful source of companionship and society and trade, and seems very fundamental to the human condition. One of the great mysteries and, and interests of cooking is the fact that it relates to society in a very particular way, because in every traditional society, in fact, in every society in the world except for modern industrial society, women invariably cook for their husbands. This is the domestic practice. Uh, on ceremonial occasions, when there are special foods, then men very often cook those. But in the ordinary domestic way, women do it. And I develop in Catching Fire the argument that the sexual division of labor has as its ultimate root the development of cooking, that the ur-practice of sexual complementarity is the fact that women cook for men, and what do men do for women? Well, of course, they traditionally provide meat and that sort of thing. But I think even more important than that, in many ways, is the fact that by being married to a man, a woman has a protector of her food supplies. It means that when the local youths come through and want to pinch her food supplies, or some woman that she doesn't like, or some other, some bachelor, she's got a way of getting back and protecting herself through being married to a man who acts on behalf of the whole community to say, no, nope, nobody can do this. There's a rule. A woman's foods are protected.
1: It's so sort of a protection racket in a way.
2: <laughs> it is. It's a primitive protection racket. And I mean, you know, we often tend to think of the sexual division of labor as, as nicely complementary. And of course, in many ways, it is. Women do things for men. Men do things for women. And uh, they both benefit from it. But if you think about the cooking relationship, there is a way in which men get the the better side of the deal and that is that men absolutely know that every night in traditional society he is able to guarantee that a woman his wife will produce food for him and if she doesn't he can beat her up and the community will just say okay well she deserved it it's a brutal world out there but when a woman says to herself what's going to happen about food tonight she doesn't know whether her husband will produce any meat or any other food it's a gamble and the result of all this is that a woman every day has to spend her time collecting the foods, preparing it, cooking it, uh, or organizing the domestic life to satisfy the man, whereas the man has much more freedom about what he does. And one day he may help uh, domestically uh, by going off and getting some food. Another day he might go off and play politics with the neighbors, uh, look for girlfriends in neighboring camps, uh, go on war raids and so on. So men are more free than women under this arrangement.
1: Mm -hmm. And this probably led to a subservient role that women have in a lot of cultures.
2: Yes. uh, Even in the most egalitarian of societies, where women anthropologists have gone out to look for the societies in which men and women have pretty much equal status, the one area in which you find status is not equal is this. And it's not that Women are necessarily happy about it. I mean, a woman can be coming back from the fields or wherever it is and say to the men, Look, we've been working all day and you've been just sitting on your butts talking to each other, and now we've got to go off and do the cooking. You know, why is that? And you know what the men say? They say, That's women's work. Mm. And, and that, I think, underscores the sort of fundamental inequity associated with cooking and the sexual division of labor. Mm.
1: Hasn't this sort of aspect of human develop uh, been appreciated before, or why has it been ignored?
2: It's odd. I think, I mean, once you start thinking about cooking, and you realize, of course, that it's hugely important for humans and no other animal does it, uh, you do start thinking it's rather surprising that people haven't drawn attention to this before, because they really haven't. I think part of the reason is that traditionally cooking has been seen as a luxury, rather than a need. And as a luxury, you don't think of it as having uh, any very penetrating importance for either our biology or society. But the increasing very clear evidence that humans are not able to survive well on raw food, except under the most extreme modern conditions of the highest quality of raw food, that really puts us into a state of nature and says, look, just like a cow is adapted to eating grass or a flea is adapted to eating blood, so a human is fundamentally adapted to eating cooked food. And once you have that new perspective, then you suddenly start asking, okay, now just how much has it affected our biology, our life history, our psychology, or all sorts of aspects of our anatomy and lives?
1: Mm. They're sort of all competing hypotheses for why humans evolved to become the predominant ape. Do you think that this is the preeminent reason why we evolved as we did?
2: Well, I do think it's the main reason that it is responsible for a particular event, which is the event that took us from being prehuman to human around 1.8 or 1.9 million years ago, when the Australopithecus or Homo habilis, the prehuman, became the first true member of the human genus, Homo erectus. Of course, though, other things have been tremendously important at different times in our evolution. I mean, the acquisition of meat-eating about two and a half million years ago set the stage for the development of cooking, and and unless there had been that terrifically important development, probably we would not have learned to cook. And prior to that, our earlier ancestors, probably about six million years ago, uh, took that step of becoming upright, which had all sorts of consequences for our ability to our hands and use tools. So it's not that this is by any means the only thing but I do think that cooking is far and away the biggest influence at the time when for the first time we can recognize in the fossil record that our teeth and our mouths became small and our guts became small indicating this commitment to cooking and therefore this pervasive change of more energy and bigger brains and bigger bodies and faster life history and so on.
1: How has uh, this hypothesis been accepted among other anthropologists?
2: To some extent, it hasn't been out long enough to be uh, seriously examined. I mean, it is true that 10 years ago, some colleagues and I published a paper in which we gave the outlines of this idea, and that was initially received with, I would say, a lot of negative reaction, a lot of skepticism, a lot of even sarcasm. But in the t- that 10 years, I would say there was a lot of change, and, and you now see considerable uh, references to it in a a favorable way. In this book, I developed the gender idea, and that hasn't been developed before, and we'll we'll wait and see what happens. The principal source of skepticism, I would say, is uh, from archaeologists who say, look, until you have real smoking gun, as it were, smoking barbecue pit from 1.8 million years ago, they won't accept the biological evidence. To me, that's just ignoring a very important source of evidence that, in this particular case, has demonstrated its validity. But, but we'll see what happens.
1: Uh, well, it looks like we're running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have some final words on your fascinating book.
2: Well, I think one of the aspects that is really interesting is that as we develop an increasing sense of the value of different kinds of foods, we move from focusing on biochemistry to focusing on biophysics. And what this book draws attention to is the way in which cooking affects the biophysics of food and therefore improves its quality. And the significance of that is nowadays that if we look at the food labeling system, it pays no attention to biophysics. It treats a pound of raw beef as having the same caloric value as a pound of cooked beef. But it's not true. A pound of cooked beef has much greater value for us. And this is significant because... Uh, during the time that we have used the system of measuring calories in our foods, food has become better and better processed all the time. So in a hidden way, we've been adding calories to our foods. And the short story here is that I think that we are seeing one way in which there is a contribution to the obesity crisis because we're eating better and better processed food, more and more finely prepared, better and better cooked, and we're getting more calories out of our food. So... An awareness of these issues may help us with our health today.
1: So it certainly argues for a better food labeling system. Exactly. All right. Well, it is very fascinating. Uh, the new book, again, is called Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. Dr. Rangham, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
2: Really a pleasure to be here. Thank you so
1: much. Mm-hmm. And you are just listening to Dr. Richard Rangham discussing Catching Fire. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Next to your fire. Here we go. It's time to play the game. It's the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Iron Chef or just a short order cook. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would rate them as an Iron Chef or a short order cook and maybe a little reason why. Dr. Rangham, you ready to play the game? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Person number one, Iron Chef or a short order cook, Jerry Springer.
2: Jerry Springer. Well, I've no reason to think that he's got iron chef skills, but I suppose (laughs) socially he does. Uh, How do we, socially he's an iron chef, but in terms of his presentation of self, he's a short order cook. Uh, (laughs) Let's go with uh, short order cook for Jerry Springer.
1: Okay, very good. (laughs) All right, person number uh, two is uh, the real estate mogul, Donald Trump.
2: Donald Trump. Well, to me, the iron chef is someone who produces real skill in what they do. Of course, Jerry Springer was skillful, but I don't see anything sort of beautifully creative in Donald Trump's presentation. I think he's someone that is another short-order cook who presents a lot of food and sells it very powerfully.
1: (laughs) All right. Person number three is the famed uh, biologist Richard Dawkins.
2: Richard Dawkins, that has to be an iron chef. (laughs) I mean. Here he is taking all sorts of ingredients that anybody could and is constructing wonderful, very strong hypotheses from them, Uh, the sort of thing that is very high-quality fare for anybody who eats it. Iron Chef for Richard Dawkins.
1: Uh, Number four is uh, the heiress, Paris Hilton.
2: Paris Hilton. Uh, She takes ingredients and uh, produces something... I suppose it's it's something that everybody loves, and yet there is something a little bit classy about it. So I don't know. It's maybe the Iron Chef of of cocktails. <laughs> um, I think uh, we'll, we'll go with an Iron Chef because, despite the fact that. She appeals to so many people at a lowest level in some ways. There is a touch of class about her.
1: <laughs> all right. Very good. Uh, and finally, number five, iron chef or shorter to cook, it's the president of the United States, Barack Obama.
2: Barack Obama is the ultimate iron chef. <laughs> uh, wh- wh- what, a, what a dude. Uh, he's able to take all sorts of extremely difficult ingredients, as he found in uh, February this year, and start welding together something that... Uh, we all think might work. Iron Chef with stars on.
1: All right. Well, uh, Dr. Ringham, I want to thank you very much for sticking around, playing our game, and again, of course, talking about your book, which again is called *Catching Fire: How Cooking Made Us Human*. Thank you very much for your time.
0: It was great fun. Thanks a lot.
1: All right, and now it's time for this week's question of the week with our good friend, the Tokyo Kid. Hey, Tokyo, how you doing?
0: Thank you, uh, Professor Lee. It's been a long time since we talked, but it's a real pleasure to hear your voice again.
1: You know, we always like hearing from you, Tokyo Kid, because you're such a big fountain of knowledge, especially given your incredible insights into the world of subatomic matter.
0: Yes, yes, we, we love subatomic matter like we love our sushi here. And so recently we have a super big machine called the Super Kamuyo the, to look at subatomic particles. And the interesting question is, uh, what is a uh, baryon? We all want to know,
1: what's a baryon?
0: Y- you know, I, I also wonder that too, but uh, my colleague re- reminded me recently it's, uh, it's actually just the three quarks, only three. Well,
1: only three? Wow.
0: Yeah, th- like a sushi, <laughs> you know, rice and the meat, but the only three particles.
1: The soy sauce makes three, right?
0: Ah, yes, yes. You are, you are catching on, Masani. <laughs> <laughs>
1: wow! Thank you very much, Tokyo kid.
0: Ah, thank you, thank you, and uh, welcome back to Japan. And that's all for this week's edition of Grog Science.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here at Grog Science, you can email us at sciencegrocs.net at For Grog Science, I'm Frank Ling,
1: and I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grogs.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.